Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. So today we're going to talk about heaven now. So this series was supposed to end two weeks ago, but um, I enjoyed it so much. I don't know about you guys, but I enjoyed it enough to keep going. And I think we'll probably have one more week and then we'll have a few weeks off in November. And then starting in December, we will be into Advent and Christmas. Can you believe that? We're just weeks away from Thanksgiving. (coughs) Excuse me. And... uh, And then the Advent season, uh, such a wonderful, uh, precious kind of a season. So today we're going to talk about heaven now, and we're going to talk about the experiences that we have of heaven now in this world, in this time, that draw us towards a desire for heaven to come. So today we're going to talk about those things which draw us upward to heaven. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis talks about this, and the, um, the chapters of Mere Christianity were radio talks during World War II to the British people on the BBC, and after the war they were edited and put into the book that was called Mere Christianity. I follow uh, the New York Times commentator um, uh, David Brooks. Some of you may be familiar with him and his books. He has some wonderful books on, uh, on character, uh, The Road to Character being uh, one of the more recent ones. In any case, um, he, uh, about 10 years ago, started on a journey from being um, his ancestry being Jewish towards becoming a follower of Jesus. And one of the funny parts about his story is that when his Christian friends knew that he was on this spiritual journey, they kept sending him copies of mere Christianity so that he had literally a stack of mere Christianity from his friends who were trying to convince him to, uh, to cross over into the Christian faith, which, uh, which he did. So C.S. Lewis speaks in Mere Christianity about our desire for something more than we experience in the present. He puts it so well. This is what he said. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. If I find myself with a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and help others to do the same. So basically, he's offering here um, a philosophical argument, and philosophical argument is based on the fact that that um, we have desires, and yet our human desires have a place of fulfillment. But the one desire that we have that is not fulfilled is that desire for completeness or complete fulfillment. And so therefore, he says, there must be something else that awaits us. As someone has said, we are not... um, We're not human beings having a spiritual experience. 
we're spiritual beings having a human experience and our real home is not here. Our real home is with our Lord. Now, the point of this is that he talks about the desires that we have now that point us towards heaven, the, the desires that we have that are kindled within us that make us want more. Your house is probably different than our house, but when Barb does some baking and she has it in one of those baking pans, and um, when it's just done, I usually notice there's a little piece taken out of it because Barb has to check it and make sure it's okay for the rest of us to eat. Yeah? And then, um, and then Scotty uh, often will get a hold of it, and, and there will be, be something gone from it as well. And then I notice that the line in the dish is not straight, so I have to, I have to make the line straight that's in the dish. Uh, but then when it's straight, it doesn't look quite right, so I need to take a little square out. And you know what happens. Yeah, before you know it, it's, it's gone. And, and it's like that, this, this desire that we have, it's not enough to have that, that little piece. It's not enough to straighten the row. We want the whole thing. And that describes some of these desires that we have in our heart that, that draw us towards heaven. So this morning, we're going to talk about three of these experiences. These are not all of them, but they're, they're three of many experiences that we can have that draw us towards heaven. So the first one we're going to talk about is beauty. Ultimate beauty is found in the relationship with our Lord, and we won't experience that ultimate beauty until we get to heaven. The psalmist writes in Psalm 27, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I love the story that Tom Wright tells about this, this, this wonder of desiring more what we experience just not being quite full enough. He says, one day, rummaging through a dusty old attic in a small Austrian town, a collector comes upon a faded manuscript containing many pages of music. It's written for the piano. Curious, he takes it to a dealer. The dealer phones a friend who appears a half an hour later, and when he sees the music, he becomes excited, excited then puzzled. This looks like the handwriting of Mozart himself. But it isn't a well-known piece. In fact, he's never heard it before. More phone calls, more excitement, more consultations. It really does seem to be Mozart. And though some parts seem distantly familiar, it doesn't correspond to anything already known in his works. But the manuscript seems incomplete. There are gaps in the music just where it seems to come to a climax. It seems to up and then pick up again later. Gradually, the truth dawns on the excited little group. What they're looking at is indeed by Mozart. It is indeed beautiful, but it's the piano part that involves another instrument or perhaps other instruments. By itself, it's frustratingly incomplete. It's a signpost to something that once was there and might still turn up one day. Tom Wright goes on to say, that's the position that we are in when we are confronted by beauty. We stand before a great painting. 
When you stand before the most amazing sunset or when you see the beauty of a human face, whether it's a little baby or a lovely wise person, there's a haunting quality to it. As though it's not just complete in itself, it's a signpost to a larger truth that's just around the corner, just out of sight. We can't grip it. We can't get our hands on it. It's as though we're hearing the echo of a voice, and we'd love to hear whose that voice is and what story it's telling. Part of the joy of beauty is the realization that it is part of a larger whole, most of which appears to be just out of sight. We're drawn forward towards something and then left wondering. So, friends, beauty, as we experience it now draws us forward. It draws us to want something more, a fulfillment that will finally come in the presence of God. I've mentioned before the poetry of Elizabeth Barrett Browning who talks about how this experience happens around us in the beauty around us. She said, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. The point is that some of us are very utilitarian and the beauty of nature around us is just for our consumption, just for us to take what we need. But if we stop and we pay attention and we see what's around us, we are drawn into this beauty where every common bush is afire with God. Our experience of beauty should draw us to the author of beauty, but too often we miss it. This morning I want to suggest we slow down. And if beauty is indeed something that draws us to heaven, draws us to God, that we slow down enough to appreciate it, to enjoy it. And it's not just the physical beauty of the Northwest, the beauty in nature, but the beauty of music, the beauty of art and literature and photography, and and you name it. Classical music may not be for everyone, but it is one of the great human accomplishments. And I am often reminded that J.S. Bach wrote on his manuscript, Sola Dio Gloria, to God alone be the glory. The beauty of that music drawing us to God. But I want to suggest a further step for us, and I want you to think about this seriously uh, today. What if we as followers of Jesus Christ are not only called to enjoy beauty, but are called with our lives to create beauty? What if we're called with our lives to create beauty? Most of us are not artists, but we can create beauty in other ways. Story is told of a bus driver who halfway through his route, he had a seven minute break. And it was always frustrating for him because where his break took place halfway through, there was a large field. And because nothing had been developed on that field, people were using it as a dumping ground. And so there was just all sorts of clutter and garbage. And it bothered him so much that he thought, well, I've got seven minutes every time I make this route. And so he packed up garbage bags in the bus, and when he got to that point, he would go into the field and, and empty the garbage and take it and get it over to the dump. 
And gradually he got the field clean. But it still looked empty, and so he got wildflower seeds, and he proceeded to scatter wildflower seeds in the field. And as a result, that garbage dump was turned into a place of beauty. And it was so beautiful that some of his riders would even extend their ride to be able to go and see the beauty of the field. Friends, our Lord has called us to contribute to beauty on earth. And I like us each maybe to think about the question, how can we contribute to beauty on the earth in a way that people are drawn to the beauty of heaven? The second thing I believe draws us to the beauty of heaven and the experience of heaven is truth. During Passion Week, you may recall Jesus appeared before Pilate and said these words, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate responded with those famous words, what is truth? What is truth? Jesus clearly articulated that he is about the truth and truth is a value that is a part of our experience of heaven. We have a longing for truth that expresses a desire for that place where truth will ultimately prevail, and that is in heaven. The work of our enemy, the enemy of our souls, is so very clear, and that's the business of untruth. In Jeremiah 9, 8, we read, Heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. In a confrontation with the Pharisees, Jesus speaks of the devil. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Friends, as followers of Jesus, we must be committed to the truth in the midst of a postmodern world that suggest truth is subjective. In our postmodern world, we find ourselves in a place of relativity where there's your choice, uh, your truth and my truth, but ultimately it's a matter of whatever truth that we choose. There's no commitment to absolute truth. This week, both the New York Times and the BBC walked back their early coverage of the rocket attack on the hospital in Gaza they had gone along with the initial report that said it was a, a British uh, a rocket that had come down and injured people in the hospital courtyard. And, but then eventually our intelligence agency said that it looked very much like a Hamas rocket that misfired and landed in the courtyard, the parking lot of the hospital. We're familiar with the term propaganda. Propaganda refers to intentionally misleading information on behalf of a political cause. Friends, as followers of Jesus, we need to be careful that we don't unwittingly contribute to falsehood, especially with supposed secrets the public doesn't know, but we believe we do, but we really don't know for sure because real people are hurt by real lies. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said we should let our yes be yes and our no, no. Honesty is a vital characteristic 
of followers of Jesus Christ. We believe the Bible is the word of God. We believe it's inspired, which means God, literally it means God breathed. When we breathe, when we breathe air in, that's called inspiration. And we believe that that's what God did with the scriptures. And that's why we hold the Bible in such high esteem. And while there may be things that we don't understand as well as we would like to we believe that it gives us truth, that indeed it gives us absolute truth that is revealed by God. It's God's revelation to us. And so we look to it to guide our steps on the journey to heaven. But some of our friends have a very different perspective that say it's not truth, and we're able to simply throw out the parts that don't like we don't like or don't seem to fit our culture today. This week, uh, I had a conversation uh, with my friend Tame Fuller. Tame is a pastor in Linwood and also heads up the nourishing network of the Foundation for Edmond School District, which we've been very involved in in feeding children uh, in South Snohomish County. We had a pastor's meeting, and Tame shared a story of when he was in seminary, there was an organization that sponsored seminary students from very diverse seminaries to go together on a trip to Israel and spend a month in Israel with expenses paid. And so Tame Rogered up for that. And as the organization wanted to do, they matched people up as roommates with very divergent theology. They wanted them to experience a, a radically different other view. And so he was, he was matched up with a very liberal Methodist. And Tame himself is a very conservative Baptist. But Tame shared a story of what happened one evening with his friend. He said that his roommate was sharp, articulate, outgoing, and generally kind. He said, we usually got along well on our trip, though we had a couple of rough spots. And he describes one of those. He said, one evening, his roommate was explaining his Christianized version of universalism to me in our room. Universalism means that eventually everybody gets saved, everybody goes to heaven, um, everybody's good. And so his version of that, his friend's version, was that Jesus saved everyone, <coughs> excuse me, but some don't, don't know it yet and need to be told the good news. So he added, if there's, hell, it, if there's a hell, it's empty. Tame says it was in that context that I asked him how he dealt with Jesus' own words. And when I went to show him a text... Where Jesus was warning about hell, he grabbed the Bible and tossed it across the room. He pointed to it and he said, there's a lot of things in that book I disagree with. I did my undergraduate work at the University of Alberta in Canada, and the motto of the university, interestingly, comes from Philippians 4.8, quecumca vera in the Latin, which um, means whatsoever things are true. And universities seem, for the most part, to have places where truth often is treated as though it is relative, that there is no absolute truth. And it slipped into our everyday culture because we find ourselves asking with Pilate, what is truth? But friends, we have the scriptures as a foundation for truth in our lives that draws us to the one who inspired the scripture 
They are God-breathed, and so we ourselves in the Scripture are drawn to truth. Heaven is a place where there's no deceit. There's no deception in heaven. Heaven is a place where honesty prevails, where truth prevails. And so we are drawn as Jesus' followers, and I think as human beings, to the truth. So in this difficult time of postmodernism and political deception, the question is, are we still a people who are drawn to truth? I fear that too many of us, too many followers of Jesus in this time, have found themselves following expressions that are less than true and for which we find ourselves as Christians in a very unfortunate place when our public pronouncements are proved false. Friends, we need to be careful. We need to align our lives and our statements with the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help us, God. The third and final thing uh, this morning that draws us to heaven, although again, these are not exclusive, is the experience of love. The great commandment is called the great commandment for good reason. In Matthew 22, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. It speaks to the core of our Christian faith. And when we look to the scripture to describe the character of God, we see that God is love. Those three words are so very important because they're the, the, the most direct description we have of who God is, the essence of God, the character of God, and those three words say God is love. More expansively from 1 John, his character is revealed this way, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved uh, God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, that is, to become the means by which our sins are forgiven. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Have you noticed in the loves of this life the joy that we experience? Those of us that have the privilege of being married or have been married can know of the experience of love within that relationship. Those of us that have not have known the experience of familial love, the love of a, of a parent, um, the love of friends in relationship, the love of children and grandchildren. We have experienced these loves in our lives, but our loves are in this life tempered with our sin. We are not able to love fully, but we find that through agape love, the unique Christian word to describe self-giving love, not love that is engaged for what's in it for us, but what's in it, what is in it for those that we are loving. When we experience and when we give that love modeled by Jesus, it helps us to approach the love of heaven in that wonderful joy that we experience by giving. 
Friends, in heaven, love will prevail. It'll be in some sense the atmosphere, the currency of heaven. So the critical question for us today as we consider our destiny is whether we want to do the will of God or not. We are we're commanded, we're told to do the will of God. And I think you'll agree that when we do the will of God, as we love others in the great commandment, that when we do it, there's an, there's an almost inexpressible joy. Not always easy, but there's a joy in living out what we understand to be the will of God. Lasting joy, even in this life, is found in fulfilling God's will, but it's only a taste of heaven. Doing his will is only a taste of the joy that awaits us in arriving in a place where his will is done. So ultimately, we need to conclude that thy will be done is a place of joy, and heaven is a place where God's will is done, and so it's a place of lasting joy. In the great divorce, uh, Lewis puts it this way. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Thy will be done. Without that self-choice, there would be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek find and those to whom they knock, it is opened. And so, friends, as I close this morning, I leave us with a question, and the question is, do we want God's will to be done? Or do we want our will to be done? And that choice makes all the difference for time and for eternity. Let's pray together. Lord, even today we prayed the prayer you taught us, and within that prayer we said the words, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, we see signs of your will in beauty around us. We see signs of your will in the truth and being a part of truth. And we see your will, Lord, in the loves of our lives. And so I pray for each one of my brothers and sisters gathered here this morning that the choice would be in each one of our lives that your will will be done. And that when we pray that prayer, we would mean it. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.